You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. As you wish. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem decent fellow. I hate to die. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hey everybody, welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Cinemarter Podcast. Uh, this is a podcast where we watch movies and then talk about the psychological, spiritual, and mythological themes in those movies. My name is Ryan, and I am joined today by my good buddy, Michael Petro. Mike, say hi to everybody. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Mike Petro, good friend of Ryan's. Always glad to be here. Glad to have a chance <laughs> to catch up with one of my favorite conversation partners. And uh, talk about a movie I'm super stoked to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, how how is your uh, how's the, we're doing this one? Surprisingly, uh, within a week of the last one we just we recorded, or two weeks, I think maybe. Um, yeah. But uh, Mike and I, we are getting on a schedule, and we are doing it for the fans. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make this podcast a real thing. Arguably, um, the so how, how's the last couple yet. weeks been? Um, you know, it's been good, man. I'm exhausted uh, for, for three reasons. So one, we're finally fully out of quarantine. We're completely open. We're mask-free. Uh, back to normal life out here in the lovely, great state of New Mexico, which means that every friend I have simultaneously is like, let's get back into the rhythm of going out all the time. So um, every time I turn around, there seems to be a social gathering. And you know that moment where it's like anything you do, has to include everyone, so it's like let's invite every. It's feel like like my social life right now is that scene from Dumb and Dumber when they're driving down, <laughs> like people pick on the side up. of the road, and they're like, "Pick them up!" <laughs> Got the family <laughs> singing in the back of the the dogmobile. Yeah, um, so so it's been yeah. good. Probably been getting not enough sleep, spending just a little bit too much money, uh, and so I'm trying to trying to ratchet back on that. The other thing is we're having a heat wave out here, so it's been hundred degree days. And the AC in my automobile is broken. So, <laughs> I've been driving around with the windows down, and it turns out, when you live in the desert, and it's 100 degree weather, putting the windows down does absolutely nothing except let you feel like there's a hairdryer blowing in your face. So, I can't, you know, listeners can't see this. I have my glasses on instead of my contacts, because my eyes are just so dry mm. <laughs> from this... uh intense blast of heat in my face all the time so that's that's about yeah. what i have going on um but no no wow. uh well i mean the, the ac thing is a complaint but other than that no real complaints <laughs> i have it's a three thousand dollar fix to get my ac running again so if anyone um feels compelled to donate <laughs> <laughs> to the uh save mike with working ac fund go for it but that's me man how are you what have you been up to Oh, I'm doing great, man. Things are uh, same boat. Uh, we are, um, you know, I'm continuing on my my adventure of the summer of hangs. I'm trying to take every opportunity right. I can to be outside, be on the lake with our kayaks. Or um, yesterday we went on a tubing adventure, and very similarly, it turned into like, oh, we're, well, a few of us are going tubing, and then it turned into there was ten of us all floating down a river together, um, which was super enjoyable, and it was a lot of laughs. Um, and then, you know, we ended up at a buddy's house afterwards and just, you know, enjoying summer and, um, 
just taking stock, like I said last episode, taking stock of life and, and just uh, being very, very appreciative of uh, the people around me. So it's been a great week. Um, super, super happy and uh, super happy to be back doing this with you tonight. So um, yeah. Right on, so, man. So and then I, I feel like um, <laughs> you and I both have made appearances on other podcasts, too, since the I was just on our good buddy Eric Schwartz has a podcast called Evan Cynical which is about people who Mm -hmm. started out in the evangelical church and are not there anymore. And I think you and I are two episodes back to back. So mine just dropped and yours is about to drop at the time of this recording, which is fun. Yeah. I think by the time we release this one, um, by the time this episode comes out, I think both of our, our episodes will be out. Um, so yeah, we are episodes. What are we episode? I think episodes five and six, maybe, or six and seven on the podcast somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but uh, if you're, you know, somebody who either just likes listening to me and Mike talk, you can hear each of us <laughs> talk for another hour and a half each. Um, or you if you're somebody that grew up in the church, um, I will say what Eric's doing over there is kind of a cool thing. He's trying to do the hard work of uh, talking to people about their experiences in the church and, uh, you know, how maybe the church could do better um, is what he's kind of oh, trying to do over right there. On. So it's good, good podcast to listen to. And then you are on... A little bit more uh, exciting news. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's exciting. More I'm exciting. Lightly, That's rude to Eric. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Nothing could be more exciting than Eric's podcast. I'm on, I'm lightly featured on a podcast called Learning How to See, which has uh, Brian McLaren and uh, two, two, uh, Gigi and Paul, two colleagues of mine here from the Center for Action and Contemplation. But there's, so, so it's Brian's podcast, and then the three of us are sort of co hosts. So I'm yeah. like 15% of the dialogue in that podcast. But I do show up here and there, and I'm like, hey, I'm a person with an opinion about something. And I just, there's a little <laughs> sprinkling of that in there, here and there. But that's fun and weird, because it's, it's, it's like, it's like 60,000 listeners. It's a different kind of an experience to, you know, this is my favorite, Ryan, is you and I. Uh, we might have yeah. three listeners on the show. <laughs> <Totally>. but <laughs> yeah. We, um... I was going to say that podcast I listened, we talked about it, I think, on the last episode. And, um, you know, I've been a fan of that podcast since the first season. And I will say, I do like the the flow that they're going for this this season yeah. with you, uh, the, the four of you kind of interacting and the yeah. way you guys are asking each other questions. And I, I do like that flow. It's a, it's a fun, fun little ride there. It's very organic. It was really fun to record. And I feel like I learned a lot yeah. from my co host, which is wild because they're people that I work with. But, you know, you, you, you just get into a different kind of a conversation, especially when you're talking about bias and you're talking about your blind spots and the things that you don't see. Trying to see what you don't see is right. is tricky, and that's pretty much the theme of the entire season. So, yeah. Yeah. Fun stuff. <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's really exciting. Yeah. I'm really, uh, really happy for you on that. Um, and uh, start your podcast empire now, Mike. I mean, here it is. That's just, I mean, you're, is you're well plan. on your way. <laughs> it's, all, it's all a plan to build Cinemartyr. <laughs> slowly but surely <laughs> to put all the attention here we're gonna get yeah, there yeah did you uh did have you uh watched any movies or anything exciting uh tv shows lately uh in the past couple of weeks um, that you want to talk about that's a very good question so i obviously did a, a, a little bit of a deep dive with what we're going to talk about in a minute and i have been so busy mm-hmm. i don't know that i've seen too much i did go see the latest fast yeah. and furious movie uh spoiler mm-hmm. alert they did finally take a car into space which was what we've all been waiting for is <laughs> those movies have gotten so ludicrous, uh, pun intended. They're so like over the top, and that's what I show up for. I mean, yeah. it's great. Um, yeah, totally. So that was fun. 
might watch Black Widow tonight. I don't know. Obviously, I'm I'm pretty hmm. snoozy, but I got a bunch of friends who are getting together to watch that tonight. That's about what I got going on. Not much. Okay. Not much. Nice. I started the book Dune, which I've been meaning to read for years. Oh, that's a uh, oh wow, that's wild. That's awesome. Yeah. That movie looks like it's going to be pretty great. So it does, it um, does. And so I have, I have a couple friends. We've we've uh, I've got one friend who's seen the movie but never read the book. Two friends who've read the book, loved the book, never seen any of the movie versions, and then I've never seen any of the versions or read the book. So I just started, and we're all going to get together and watch all the adaptations in preparation for the new movie coming out, which I think is later this year. Might be. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I sort of lost track. I've seen the trailers or whatever, but uh, yeah. Right. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't really watched much myself. Uh, I've been super busy. And then, like I said, when I do have downtime, it's been spent outside. But Laura and I, uh, you know, like probably most of the world, we've been watching the, the Loki, which has been pretty fun. That's a fun ride. Um, that has been good. So, um, but uh, yeah, other than that, we I don't think we really watched anything uh, super exciting. I haven't even watched X Files in like two weeks, which is wild. Oh my god, I don't even know. Like <laughs> so, I, I was thinking about that. How are we going to bring X Files <laughs> into this episode today? Hey, did you watch um, yeah, Ted Lasso? Not yet. It's on okay, my list. Do. I, Season two is about to come out. Okay. It's great. It might have been the best thing I watched during the quarantine. It's really good. That's what I've heard from several people, and I just haven't. Because uh, wait, what do I have to subscribe to to get that? What is Apple that's TV. On, is that on Apple? Yeah. yeah. Which we don't have any of that, so I'd have to do that, which I just, we have so many sub- streaming services right now. I anyway. <laughs> but, okay, well, um, why don't we jump into this week's um, this week's uh, movie. Um, this one, we Mike and I have a, a long list of movies that we want to get to, and uh, we, we realized that we have been doing a lot more, a lot of... Uh, darker movies a little bit uh, heavier conversations so i said to mike that i wanted to do a a lighter one and 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 mike found that to be very uh, hilarious that i would say that true love the theme true love was was a lighter conversation uh, yeah. than the stuff we'd been talking about i don't i don't know that it's lighter and i think you and i talking about it should be a blast yeah 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 really really um but this one actually comes from a listener suggestion uh on our instagram uh, asked us when we were going to do The Princess Bride. And I actually thought, you know what? That's kind of a good one uh, to do. Um, one of my all-time favorite movies. So no, you know, not uh, not a struggle to get me to watch this one. Um, in fact, I think I just watched this like maybe two months ago. So I just, you know, <laughs> I watched it again this, uh, this past week. But um, yeah, so we're going to do Princess Bride today. Um, this movie. Oh, well, I, have a, I have a lead-in question before you get into the details. Okay, go ahead. Is this... The greatest movie of all time. Question. Okay, good question. Good question. It is, it's up there. I don't know if I could say it's the greatest movie of all time, because for me, that is no no doubt always going to fall on Back to the Future for Fair. me, because I think that is a perfect story, and it just hits the nostalgia bug just right for me. Uh, but this one is way, way up there. The storytelling is great. Um, you know, the, the act, the, the actors in this are, oh, you know, classics, you know, um, I, this movie is fantastic. Do you think this is the best, you story, know, the best movie? I don't, I wouldn't say it's, um, I don't know if it's my number one, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like every single time I watch it, I feel like it's almost perfect yeah. in doing what it sets out to do absolutely flawlessly. And every single person in it turns in a career-defining performance. Like, every single person in it is most famous for that role. And almost every scene in it is iconic, right? It's like, 
every time you're like, man, this is the best scene. And then something else happens. And you're like, no, this is the best scene. Yeah, like, no, this is the best line. And then, and then the more characters keep showing up. You're like, this, this person totally steals the movie. And it keeps happening till you finally get to Billy Crystal and you're like, is he stealing the movie? Right. And then you get to the minister who's doing the wedding and you're like, wait, is he stealing the movie? It just, right. it just keeps building. Um, and it moves so quick and it's so much fun. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll get we'll get to this. I didn't see this. I saw this many years after it came out. I saw this mm. when I was in college mm. and could not believe that I didn't know it existed because yeah. it's such a good movie. It's so much fun. And I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. And if you don't like it, then I say like the old lady in the dream sequence, boo on you because it's such a great movie. Oh, my God. So, Ryan, please, I, I, I apologize yeah. for interrupting. Please tell us all about it. No, that's great because uh, I am in the same boat. I mean, I actually did. I think I saw this soon after it first came out. Um this was a classic in our youth group that I grew up in the Methodist church. Like we always okay. watched this at like when we would have like sleepovers and stuff at the church or whatever. Um, and we quoted this movie like to the death, like nonstop. We would quote every single line from this movie. Um, so this is, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I could probably quote the movie beginning to end with, you know, without any coaching. Um, that's yeah. how many times I've seen this movie. So yeah, this is a, this is a fantastic film. Um, uh, but anyway, let's do a quick recap. I mean, I don't even think I need to go into super details on this one because again, like Mike said, if you haven't seen this, ugh, probably the wrong podcast for you. Um, <laughs> anyway, so this movie is, uh, a classic, uh, love story, uh, sort of a fairy tale esque, uh, story. It was based on a book that was written, uh, by William Goldman in 1973. Um, um, the Princess Bride was the same, uh, it was the name of the novel. And, uh, this movie was released in 1987, directed by Rob Reiner, uh, starring Carrie Elwes and Robin Wright and a million other amazing actors that we'll get to. But the basis of this story is that there is a, um, there are two, the two main characters are, a woman, uh, by the name of Buttercup and a man by the name of Wesley. And they are, um, I guess they're peasants. I guess they live uh, in the, in the farm. Um, in the countryside and she is um, it seems as though she's sort of somehow in control of this farm but they don't really explain it very well um, and he sort of works for her and she calls him farm boy and they eventually and she bosses him around in the beginning they fall in love he goes away to, I guess, to like kind of make money to uh, kind of set themselves up and, and make a life for themselves. And then he disappears. She gets word that he was killed by a, the, this guy named the Dread Pirate Roberts. Um, so she mourns. She's like super depressed for years and years and years. Uh, five years later, uh, the king of the land. Um, oh, my gosh. Why am I drawing a blank on the king's name? Humperdinck. Humperdinck. Holy prince. crap. The king's How could name? I Humperdinck's <laughs> the prince. Humperdinck, Humperdinck. Prince, Prince, Prince yeah. So anyway, the prince, uh, I guess he can sort of claim any woman he wants in the land to be his bride and, and claims uh, Buttercup to be his bride. So they're set up to be married. And then what happens is this guy comes... Um, oh boy, how do I explain this? There might be too many details for this story. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Hey everybody, Ryan from the future here. I'm currently editing this podcast, and at this point, I went on for like five minutes explaining every single little detail of the movie, and you don't want to sit through that. So let's actually sum this up. Turns out Wesley isn't dead. He has assumed the role of the Dread Pirate Roberts, and he's been on the high seas, winning money to come back and make a life for him and Buttercup. So he comes back. 
He makes a plan to rescue Buttercup. He teams up with some crazy dudes, one of which is Andre the Giant, R.I.P. They storm the castle, he wins back Buttercup, and they ride off into the sunset on white horses. Now, let's go back in time and get back to the podcast. It's such a classic movie. Um, and it was really fun for me to read the book, which I did do in preparation for this episode, because I did not know it was a book mm. until like a year or two ago. For whatever reason, I found my way to the Wikipedia page for The Princess Bride. I had mm -hmm. a, I mean, they've just gone through a bunch of anniversaries and they've gotten cast together. Carrie Elways just wrote a book, I think called As You Wish, that's about them filming it. Oh, wow. Because he said people would always say to him, did you have as much fun filming the movie as we did watching it. And he said, even more. It, was, yeah. it sounds like everyone who worked on this movie had a great time and it really translates. So all that to say, I was, I was somewhere doing some research and I realized the, the movie is an adaptation of the book, The Princess Bride by William Goldman, which was written in 1973. No idea that there was a book. And then the book itself is written in the style of being the abridgment of another book, which does not exist. And so in the, oh. in the movie, It starts out, um, Fred Savage is sick, right? Mm -hmm. Kid from the Wonder Years at that age. He's homesick. His grandfather, who's, I think, Peter Falk, Columbo, shows up yep. and he's going to read him a story. And he whips out the book, The Princess Bride. So the, the, the book itself starts similar. He, the, the author is, the author is narrating as himself, as uh, William Goldman. And he says that when he was a little kid, he got sick and his father, read him this book on a sick day and he had like pneumonia something really bad right and so then he gave a copy of the book to his son when his son turned 10 but his son really wasn't into it and he was so disappointed that his son didn't love this book that he loved and he talks about how he heard this story and it changed his life mm. like the adventure and the tale changed everything like one day he was one person the next day he was a totally different person mm. which is rad Because as someone who has a degree in mythology and studies like Joseph Campbell and all that, that's what a good story is right. supposed to do. It's, it's supposed to intrigue you, and yeah. it's supposed to give you a fantastic setting that lets you think about what your life could be and what the journey of being human is. Mm -hmm. So he is crushed that his son doesn't like the book, and he picks it up, and he realizes it's a long-ass boring book <laughs> with some really good exciting parts that his father skimmed when he read it to him as a child. Mm. So he says, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to abridge – the book. And so the actual title of the book is called The Princess Bride, uh, S. Morgenstein's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version abridged by William Goldman. <laughs> and so it's, it's short. It's really punchy. And the funny thing is, if you read the book, the book feels like a shorter version of the movie. Because when they, they, oh. uh, you probably know this, we might get into this with trivia. They tried to adapt it a bunch of times. They could never get it off the runway. Because it has such an oddball feel, and, yeah. and it translates perfectly in the movie. Mm -hmm. But before the movie came out, all these major projects kept going, and they were like, we're never going to get the quirky weirdness of what this is just right. It's either going to be too silly or yeah. too adventurous, but being in that sweet spot is going to be impossible. And when they finally pulled it off, uh, they got Rob Reiner to direct it. He'd been given a copy of it by his dad. So he mm. had a real attachment to it. Mm. And then they had William Goldman write the screenplay. Right. And so the thing is, what he basically does is he takes the book, he leaves out one or two little parts, which I'll, I'll mention if we go through it. Yeah. But for the most part, he actually expands on it. He takes jokes that are, you know, 
a decade and a half old and he just makes them a little better. So like mm. when they go to Miracle Max and he says, true love is the greatest thing in the book. He says, true love is the greatest thing except for cough drops. And then when Billy Crystal does it, he says, true love is the greatest thing except for an MLT, a mutton, lettuce, and tomato, and the mutton is nice and lean. It's the best. It might be the best line in the movie. I'm going to say that. I guarantee I'm going to say that a half a dozen times in this episode. It's the best line in the movie. So it's things like that where he just improves it a little bit, but it really has that punchy feel. And it's a lot of fun. Um, The main thing being the ending is a little bit different. And I I hope we get a chance. I'm going to tell you the ending. And okay. there's a few uh, details. I want to. Can I give some of the details, or will that be too much? You can okay. cut them later. Yeah, yeah, just go to for fill it. in some of the plot. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you mentioned Buttercup. Her parents own the farm. Wesley works for them, and she they don't realize they're in love at first, and so she finally realizes she's in love and confesses her love for him. And then the next day, he says, "Well, I'm I'm leaving for America," and um, she wants to know why. And he says, well, "I have to go make my fortune." So he's going to make some money so that he can come back and, and provide a life for her. And that's why he disappears. Um, and there's a few things in the movie and the book that you notice as an adult that you didn't notice as a kid, right? So uh, eventually what happens is the king is dying. And if the king dies, the prince has to be married and have an heir. But he's not particularly interested in getting married. He doesn't want a wife. Um, mm. So much so, Ryan, here's a question for you. It's not in the book, but in the movie, watching the movie again as an adult was the first time I, I knew from the book the prince has no interest in in getting married, but it's right. a tradition, so he has to do it. And so he goes and finds her. At this point, Wesley's gone off. They get message that his ship has been sunk by the dread pirate Roberts who leaves no prisoner, so they assume he's dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, they find out she's the most beautiful woman in the land. The prince sends for her, and she says, I'll never love again. And he says, Perfect. Love has literally nothing to do with it. This is like a business agreement for the for the good of the land. And she says, well, then I can do that. But yeah. uh, but when I watched the movie, you know, the Count, who's the, the prince's right-hand man, they right. like roll around. And this is the first time ever I watched the movie and went, oh, are they a couple? Yeah. Like, are they is, – is the idea that he doesn't really want to get married because they're a thing? And I yeah. think that's there. I just never picked up on it before. What do you think? Oh, it's definitely possible. Yeah, okay. totally, totally. Yeah, and the, the dynamic between the two of them in the movie is hysterical. The scene where he says to him, you know, he invites him to come down, and he's like, you know, I wish I could. He's like, I've got a wedding to plan, a, a wedding to plan, yeah. uh, my wife to murder, and a war, and a war to start. <laughs> and the guy's like, yeah. Yeah. Hey, you're under so much stress. If you don't yeah. have your health, you don't have anything. Something like that. It's such a great line. Um, totally, never totally. picked up on that as a kid. Um, Christopher Guest, by the way, who is. Always amazing in pretty much everything he ever does. <laughs> wow. One more thing where in any other movie, he would have stolen the entire movie because he's so good as the as the six-fingered man, right? He's so creepy. Um, well, because really, really the good. funny thing about that is I think for years, like, I didn't actually even realize that that was Christopher Guest <laughs> because, what like, he's so he... in that role. Spinal Tap. Yes, um, yes, exactly. Same director. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, no, no, he's absolutely fantastic, and the rivalry between him and Inigo Montoya, which is in in the book, it's all. I mean, almost everything in the book is exactly the same. Yeah, um, you know, when you didn't mention Inigo Montoya shows up, so Buttercup gets kidnapped by these three kind of crooks, and mm-hmm. you don't know it's her soon to be fiance who's actually hired right. them. Right, uh, and one detail they give you in the in the book 
that they don't quite make as much of is that the prince is basically into two things, fighting wars and hunting. Right. And he's the greatest hunter alive, uh, which is why they make such a big deal that there's nowhere you can go. He won't track you because he really is an amazing hunter. Right. In fact, when they put Wesley in the pit of despair in the book, um, that is a part of an indoor zoo. And every level, the creatures get more dangerous than the level before it. And they're all things that the prince has hunted. And he has one room that's empty because he's always wanted to find a quarry that's as dangerous as he is. And so when he finally gets Wesley, he throws Wesley in there. And then that's oh, where they okay. bring the machine and do all this stuff to him. But, uh, but it's, you know, these, these, um, criminals, the one, the first is Inigo Montoya. He's the swordsman. He's the Spaniard. And you find out this backstory that his father was a sword maker and he was killed by a six fingered man. And he's been studying fencing for 20 years. And the, the punchy dialogue between him and the man in black, Wesley, when they meet, um, and they have this sword fight. It's yeah. so good. Right. Yeah. And they like are, are, are helping each other. Like the one, you know, when Wesley climbs, he's just climbed up a cliff and he lets him catch his breath so right. that the fight will be good. Yep. And then he, he gets disarmed at one point and he lets, uh, an ego go and get his sword. Yep. And then there's that twist where they've been fighting the whole time. And he says, I'm losing, but I know something you don't know. I'm not left-handed. And I know everyone right. listening has heard this, but yeah. it's so good. Yeah. It's just like that in the book. They're okay. such intriguing and engrossing characters. And it's such a good sword fight. That's the other thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I heard a piece of trivia. I don't know if you heard this. When they, they went so hard on the sword fighting that they learned all the choreography. And when they went to film it, it was a lot shorter than they needed it to be because they were moving so fast. And so he actually said to them, all right, we'll go back, make the sword fight longer. Yeah. And so they did a bunch of research to find out what the longest sword fight on film was at that point, and then and then created more choreography to make it longer to make it the longest sword fight, which is wild because it's this quirky comedy, but it's a really badass sword fight right in the middle of the movie. So it's so super duper fun. Well, well two two bits of information about that is uh, they apparently they practiced for like a really long time to to be able to pull that off, yep. and it's all them. Except for, I think I read the only thing that is not them is when Wesley does the flip yeah. on the bar and he flips down. That's not him. Um, that's a stunt double. And then the other thing, hold on, let me find this little. I believe bit that about the flip. Here. Reminds me of Jurassic Park, The Lost yeah, World, yeah. one of my least favorite scenes in all of cinematic history. When the daughter does the flip and like does the gymnastic <laughs> flip to kick the velociraptor. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. marvelous. Yeah. Uh, but so the one little other bit of trivia I read is that I guess the fights that was choreographed by Bob Anderson, who also choreographed Star Wars. Oh, right on. Yes, interesting, interesting. He's a good a good fight choreographer. Um, much more exciting than any of the lightsaber. Well, no, uh, the actual choreography. I would say is much more exciting than any of the lightsaber battles in the original Star Wars trilogy. But yeah. um I think, you know, obviously music and special effects and everything that Empire Strikes Back. All all the lightsaber battles are great in the original Star Wars. Um yeah. Well, speaking fantastic. of music real quick, the yeah. only the other thing that I noticed in this movie this time that I paid a little bit more attention because I was, you know, trying to look at this like with a really tight eye. Um yeah. there's a lot of points in this movie where they really play up the music where like when they're hitting the swords yeah. the orchestra is hitting their hits on the hits yep. um and oh. then it also happens when uh wesley is like like come back to life later in the book and his like i think wait is, am i remembering this correctly like when his head is bobbing there's yeah. they're like they the orchestra makes hits as his head is bobbing and it's just like little subtle things like that that they do with the music in this that are just 
really great and really it's draw so you into this. Like, good. like the sword scene is so so intense and those like hits because there's a, that one spot where they where they're going, duh, 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 you know, hitting very fast, and they stop and the orchestra stops, dead silence. Yeah. And then they start, and it's when the sword goes up in the air and he catches it. And then as soon as they catches it, the orchestra starts again. And oh man, that is like orchestrated so, so well in that scene. Um, and you should edit it. You should edit a, a clip of that in here just now. That's so rad. What's so funny, too, is, like, Carrie Elways, I know, I mean, he's in a bunch of stuff, but I know him from this, and I know him from Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is very funny. (laughs) But the irony in that is, the reason that he's cast in this is because they're going for that old-school Errol Flynn swashbuckler kind of hero. And so, if you ever go back and you watch the the famous sword fight from Errol Flynn's Robin Hood... Mm -hmm. It has a similar vibe. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. It would have been something that I feel like our parents or our grandparents would have watched. Right. But it's famous because there's really good sword choreography in a very, in, in a, you know, that kind of a movie. And then there's a great scene where they step out of frame and instead you see their shadows sword fighting. It's pretty great. Yeah. But, um, but I love the fact that he's trying to throw this Robin Hood vibe and they so nail it. They crush it and do it better. Yeah. Which is why it would be hysterical that later on he would play actually Robin Hood in a, in a, in an overt spoof of that. Right. Man, I love that scene. I love the backstory of the six fingered man. I love how considerate they are and respectful they are of each other, and they're like complimenting each other's swordsmanship yeah. as they're fighting. Yeah. And then you know he uh, he finally uh, Wesley finally defeats him, and I think he says something like "Kill me quickly," and he says, "I just as soon shatter a stained glass window as destroy an artist yeah. like yourself," and he just knocks such him a out. good line. It's so. So great. Oh my God. I, I, that, the gauntlet of those three henchmen in and of itself is such a good middle to that. You know, then, and then the next guy being Andre the Giant. Right. Which I know, I know they considered Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno for this role, but I cannot imagine anyone other than Andre the Giant. He, in a way, sort of, and I know I'm going to say this over and over again, sort of makes the movie. He's so iconic in that role. Yeah. And it's so much fun watching him be sort of what he is on screen, which is this big, ultra-lethal, very gentle giant. Totally. Well, that's the thing about the thing about this movie when it comes to the casting of it. Like you said, with Andre, they definitely wanted Schwarzenegger because, again, I think, like you mentioned earlier, they wanted to do this, like, 10 years earlier mm-hmm. and they at the time they could have gotten Schwarzenegger but by the time this movie was made he was already a big star so they couldn't afford him mm-hmm. and that's why they went with Andre the Giant but there was other like even um even Buttercup I read that there was like who, who I think she was the last per, um Robin Wright was the last actress that they uh, auditioned for this oh. and they had uh who was it like Uma Thurman uh, Courtney Cox, Meg Ryan supposedly all auditioned for it, and William Goldman said he wanted Carrie Fisher to be Buttercup. Ah, could you imagine that? That would have been wild. That would have been <laughs> special in its own way. It's so hard to even imagine a single character being differently cast in this movie because they make it so their own, and it is so iconic. Like the like you said, like each person gets bigger than the last, but they're not like. No one is stealing the show. You know what I mean? It is such a truly good ensemble cast that it is just like 
perfectly cast, in my opinion. Oh my I couldn't God. imagine a single character being different. And that's the thing. And I love the fact that for me, there's, I mean, even Andre the Giant, who is Andre the Giant, right? He's yeah. this ama- a magnificent personality, celebrity of the WWF um, at the height of his career at that point, but not a movie star. Mm-hmm. So there's no one who takes me out of it where I'm like, oh, that's Johnny Depp playing Jack Sparrow. They're, they are, they embody the characters. Part of it because they're amazing performances. Yeah. And part of it because none of them was a gigantic movie star that you associate with anything else. And they're all perfect. The gestalt mm-hmm. of it is phenomenal. It all fits together so well. Um, and then even the, uh, who's the dude? What was it? Fazzini? The guy, the yeah. test of wits, the third guy that he has to beat with the Iocane powder. Yeah. That guy, never go get up against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Wallace that Sean inconceivable. Like, he's brilliant. Everything is brilliant. It's just yeah. his, I, I never stop laughing at l- every single line that comes out of that man's mouth. Oh, it's, it's amazing. He's hilarious. He's so good. <laughs> When it never go up against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> and he falls over. Dude. It's so, he just freezes. Oh, it's so amazing. Frame. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And it's like, I mean, 75% uh, of this movie is is probably a meme, right, at this point. Because there's so many good one-liners. Totally. You'd be like, inconceivable. And he's totally. like, you keep using yeah, that word. Yeah. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Although I do think it means exactly what you think it means. It does. It totally does. We used to quote the, uh, uh, no more rhymes now. I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? We used to oh my cl- God, it's cr- so quote good. that as kids all day long, man. Oh my God. There's so it many It just, it never, it ne- like even the, like, have fun storming the castle. Like there's just so many good. <laughs> I love this movie. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, and it, I feel like it's aged really well. One, one thing I noticed in this, um, that I hadn't noticed any time before viewing this. And again, I've probably seen this, I don't even know, 50 times. I don't even, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen it, but is this a low key Christmas movie? Yes. Have you, did you notice that there's Christmas decorations in Fred Savage's room? And when she opens the windows, there are Christmas lights outside. So this and is like Die he, Hard. This is a low-key Christmas movie. 100%. And when he gives him the book, it's wrapped as a Christmas present. So I didn't notice that. And then I was reading up on it, and I, a couple other people did. So 100%. This is a low-key Christmas movie. Like Gremlins and Die Hard. So this time, literally, I, I, I noticed all the Christmas decorations for the first time. I noticed the Christmas lights. But I didn't, I didn't notice that it was a Christmas gift. I just thought it was a... My grandson is sick gift. But you're totally right. It was wrapped as a Christmas gift. Absolutely. This is a Christmas movie. I know, I know, and now and now it shoots up to the top of my list of Christmas movies. That's pretty fantastic. <laughs> but you you started to say before you know our delay caused us to get cut off. You said um, that this movie has aged well, and I would totally agree. I think I, yeah. this may be a timeless movie. Absolutely, and I think I think because it's purposely cheesy, that's the part where like even even the special effects that seem dated work because it's supposed to feel that way. Right. Like when it looks like they're on a set, it works because it's it's going for that look. Um it is am- it is amazing to me the subtlety of like you said the, and I didn't read the book but you're saying that that's what they, their struggle was was to figure out a way to make this feel quirky and a little bit off kilter. 
And it is amazing to me the subtlety of how they pulled that off. Like you said, with the yeah. set design, there's um, but like just the overall feel because they're not playing it quirky. Like they're yeah. playing it serious. Like the, the actors. Oh yeah. But yeah. it feels quirky and odd, and it's a lot of the even like the subtlety of the mismatch between Andre the Giant and uh, and uh, Vincini, like yeah, that just you know it has that slightly off kilter feel yep. to it that is just so perfect, so perfect, absolutely, yeah, and it's 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 really really fun. Um, the the weird. <laughs> Do you want to be where I found you? Unemployed in Greenland? <laughs> what the hell? It's such yeah. a fun movie. Yeah, it really, really yeah, does yeah. Um, hit that sweet spot. And there's so much of it. Like, Or even, even I love the, like I said, right when Billy Crystal has utterly and completely stolen the entire movie. And I'm like, all right, this is, it's never going to get funnier than that. And then they go to the bishop who's marrying them and he has that goofy accent. And yeah. he's like, Mowing. Yeah. <laughs> it's such yeah. And I'm like, was that in the script? Was that a decision they made on that yeah. day? Was that the was that the actor's choice? Like, who thought yeah. of that? It's so great. Well, I, I did read a bit of trivia about that. That that was I think Rob Reiner said that that was inspired by like a, a rabbi that he knew or or uh, had seen before. Oh that God. It's kind of a little little shitty, but I guess the rabbi had a little bit of a speech impediment, okay. sort of like that, and that's what inspired it. So it's kind of a little bit of a shitty origin story, oh, but sure. it, in this movie, in this place, you know, it it uh, totally works. Oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely a few there's and there's a few shitty things. Keeping with our theme, Ryan, I don't know if you picked up on this <laughs> of the last three movies, and we're not making light of this, yeah. but what wow, we watched Night of the Living Dead. In yep. which we had a scene where a female protagonist is having a literal nervous breakdown and the male lead slaps her to get her to come back to herself yep. because she is literally having a nervous breakdown and freaking out that's going to get them all killed. But it is that old school thing of like, this is how we calm people down as we slap them. Then right. War of the Worlds, which while an earlier movie takes a more conservative tone where the <laughs> male lead shakes the female lead to get her to calm down when she's freaking out. And right. then in this movie... All that happens is the lead threatens to hit right. the female lead in the context that he's pretending to be uh, or sort of is this notorious pirate who, of course, would be like rough and terrible. But I notice yes. we're, we're we seem to be evolving through the yes. um, <laughs> uh, the stage that never appropriate, obviously, no. and not no. to make light of of. Uh, of, of violence of any kind, especially intimate partner violence or violence of men against women. But it totally. is still, there's times like I watch, I watch a movie from the eighties sometimes, right. As, and we, why the movie from the fifties and the sixties here. And I'm like, it feels like we literally climbed out of the stone age three and a half seconds ago, that there oh, are totally. some things that, that literally you give it a decade or two and you're like, that is not okay. Um, but this movie exceptionally light on those. Yeah. Because yeah, he yeah. is, he is playing, an evil character when he pretends to do that, which he doesn't do. Um, right. Right. Which, but it, I would say in that, at that particular moment, it sort of begs the question, why is he still pretending to be the dread pirate Roberts? That that's the one thing when I and, watched and, this movie this yeah. time where I was like, wait a minute, why is he doing this? Because the only reason he could possibly be doing it is because he kind of wants to like stick it to her a little bit. He kind of wants to like, he literally questions her. Did you, uh, did you, uh, get engaged to uh, Humperdinck that same day or did you mourn or whatever, you know, and he's kind of like sticking it to her a little bit. 
So that's mm-hmm. the one part of the movie watching it this time that I felt like, wait a minute, this is Wesley. He like loves her. Like he wouldn't do that. He'd be like so stoked to be with her. He'd be like rip his mask kind off. Kind of being a dick, yeah, Wesley. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that one that part felt a little off to me. And and I and I think I think it's supposed to. I mean, um, I I, I felt the same thing too. You're like, why don't you just tell her who you are, dude? Like, yeah, you just saved her life. But I think he's still. He legit doesn't understand why she agreed. And I think what he needs to hear is he needs to hear her say that she doesn't love the prince. Right. Um, and he needs to hear her say that as the Dread Pirate Roberts and not Wesley so that he can then reveal himself and, and his kind of still ongoing love for her. But right. yeah, you're definitely, right. there's a point where it's like, why are you being so mean to each other? Yeah. <laughs> and, and definitely more him than her. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, but yeah, man, oh, man. it's a good one. Totally, totally. Um, so, um, oh, speaking of which, at that scene when when uh, when when he like rolls down the hill or whatever, there's a couple right around that time, like when they're in the fire swamp and stuff like that. There's the one scene where he like lays down by a rock. I think it's right after he like reveals himself to her or something like that, and you can see his leg like he like straightens it out like really awkwardly and lays down when he gets down by the rock. And there's also a scene in the fire yep. swamp where he like does this little weird like hop thing. And it's because, um, I guess earlier he was, Andre the Giant was having like seriously bad back problems from like all of his wrestling and stuff like that. And so like sure. he needed a four wheeler to get him around set. And I guess for at one point, Carrie L was like drove him on the four wheeler and his foot slipped off the four wheeler and it got stuck under the tire or something like that. Oh my God. And he broke his toe. And he, but he hid it from oh Rob God. Reiner because he didn't want to like make a big deal out of it. And so that's what you're seeing in those scenes is him like, limping and favoring because he had a freaking broken toe <laughs> like, that's wild that's yeah, yeah, yeah. wild it, it, it sounds like there were a few things if you remember the scene where they're in the the fire swamp and the fire actually does its thing and it catches buttercup's dress on fire that's the very first thing they shot in the entire movie and it mm. did catch her dress on fire which i think maybe it was supposed to i've heard two different versions of the story one is that William Goldman was on set when they did it and he like yes. freaked out and made a scene and he's like, oh my God, she's on fire because he didn't know it was planned. But the other thing is she did actually get burned because the stunt didn't go right. And I've right. seen recent interviews with them where they still talk about her getting burned on the first day of filming as like a brand new 20 something year old actress. Well, and I also heard that um, uh, Mandy Patinkin uh, in Ego, when he gets hit on the head with by 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 Wesley um, when he knocked I'd sooner yeah. crash a stained glass window that scene um supposedly he told him like really hit me like I wanted to look real on camera and apparently he did and was then like hospitalized because he like hit him too hard <laughs> so oh that's hysterical because I've seen reaction videos where people talk about how fake that scene looks oh really that, that 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 makes it that much funnier that it was a real thing where he really did clunk him Another thing I read was that apparently Mandy Patinkin went so hard with sword fighting, he and Carrie Elways got into that. They have that amazing fight scene. But the dude who plays the Count was actually afraid to fight him because Mm. he was being so aggressive uh, with the choreography when they actually filmed it. And he had like something, he was like, this is is too much. Like, you need to tone it down, (laughs) which is hysterical. Um, he is, but it is. A, I mean, come on! It's a great scene where he pulls the knife out of himself and stands up, and he's he's saying the line over. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. Yeah. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Like it's, yeah. I just love it so much. Oh my he's God. so good. I, I, I read something. He was he gave an interview, and he was talking about how literally, ever, like not like with no exception, 
somebody like at least two or three people quote that line to him every day, like when he's out in public. And he says he doesn't get tired of it because he I'm loves sure. the character. And he said he's so happy that that was part of his life that he got to play such an iconic character. So, which is really like as a fan, that's a really beautiful idea. <laughs> it's, it is. I, I saw an interview recently with Carrie Always who was talking about meeting a woman uh, who told him she has as showed him she has as you wish tattooed on the back of her mm. neck. Um, and she was saying it's like her favorite movie and it has like a very special meaning for her and so on and so forth. And it, it sounds like all of them uh have you know it, it's just so iconic that they're they say constantly people are coming up to them and asking them stories about it asking you know right. quoting lines so on and so forth so that's yeah. rad i love yeah. that what a great thing to be known for um yeah. the uh that inigo montoya line is he has a bunch of great lines he has a bunch of great lines they all do i yeah. love this movie <laughs> Yeah. I love Seriously, that's what I'm saying. We we could quote the entire movie right now, and uh, but I think we shouldn't because yeah. just watch the movie yeah. again. You could watch yeah. it tomorrow and still enjoy it. You know? <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. Oh, by the way, I did want I did want to say I remember when we did. Uh, hold on, was it Scrooged? Where I was, I yes, it was Scrooged. When yeah. I was saying that I did not enjoy Carol Kane's character in that because her over the top yeah. stuff yes. like sort of took me out of the film. Sure. This is, mm-hmm. on contrary, the perfect Carol Kane character. As I never She's knew her amazing. name until today. Her name is Valerie in the uh, the liner okay. notes. Um, but she's perfect, liar, liar. <laughs> she's so good. Humpadink, humpadink, humpadink. Oh my god, she is. She True is love. great. She. That oh my bit. god. Oh my god, she's so good in that. The, both the, the the way that her and Billy Crystal play off each other is just so amazing. Oh yeah, no, no, totally phenomenal. Um, yeah, really, really good. They they work. That's the other thing that's so much fun about this movie is uh, I know a lot of times when they when you cast people, you know, you have to do screen tests to see if like somebody could be great, but everybody in the in the cast has to have chemistry together. And there's no pairing in this entire film where the chemistry is not electric, like where they're giving lines back and forth and it's not great, right? Humperdinck and the Count are great. Humperdinck and Buttercup are great. Humperdinck and Wesley are great. Um, you know, Andre the Giant is great with, um, uh, what's his name? Anigo Montoya. He's great with the inconceivable dude. He's great when he's talking to Wesley, when Wesley's like half dead. It's all really, really good. Well, I was going to say, I mean, maybe it's time we should get into some of the themes of this movie. And obviously the big theme in this yeah. movie is true love. Um, but the, the yeah. great, I mean, the thing that this movie does so well is, yes, the theme is true love. But it is showing you love in many different forms. There's, it's showing you, obviously, there's the love between Wesley and Buttercup, which is the romantic love. It's showing familial love between the grandfather and Fred Savage. Which, when, when I'm sorry, but when Peter Falk gives that last as you wish at the end of the movie... I may have oh gotten a little choked up. Like I may have gotten a little yeah. choked up at that because it's like so yeah. well done. Um, and then oh it also God. shows between the, the, the one line that like always has stuck out to me is between, um, is between Fezzik and Inigo when, when, <laughs> when Inigo is like trashed and they're trying to clear everybody out of the forest. And then, yep. and then Fezzik comes in and he picks him up and, the, and Inigo's head like jolts back and he looks up and he goes, it's you. 
and there's like love between friends there like and it's just like yeah. he's so happy to see his friend who had they yeah. have this like weird like not weird they have this beautiful um connection of like you know an odd couple that you wouldn't expect to see together and it's like showing uh, oh yeah friendship. and they and they set that up so well early in the movie because uh what's his name fazzini such a dick to them yeah but they have such a good friendship with uh, with each other and I remember that standing out in the book where it talks about how uh, Fazzini would be angry if he knew that Fezzik was rhyming again, but yeah. Inigo uh, encourages him to do it. Right. right? <laughs> it's something they do together for fun. Right. And I, I would I would go so far as to say that I think um, I love the movie. I love the romance. I, I have I think it's perfect. I have nothing bad to say about it. But I, I'm with you. I actually think that all the other ways that the movie shows love. Yeah. are even better yes. than the actual romance, right? Because there's a little, I mean, the, the true love thing is fun, but it's also like, you're like, all right, you two have, you knew each other for like five minutes, which is not right. not true, but y- you know, there's, um, it's, and we'll, we'll get into true love, I'm sure. Yeah. But I totally agree with you. I think it's such a good point and I appreciate it. There's so many different ways that characters love each other well. Even, even the, I'm not saying it's healthy and I'm not encouraging it, but the like revenge quest that an ego's on because he loves his father so right. much. Totally. Right. There's love and devotion drives a lot of yes. this story mm-hmm. and it drives it very well. Yeah. Um, really, really beautifully. Yeah. Well, even yeah, good point, it's, man. it's, it's a, it's a short little scene, but even uh, miracle max and Valerie, she comes out and she's, you know, obviously they've been married for a long time, right? They're ancient people. Yep. And she comes out and she says yep. something to the effect of like, um, the, the king, the, the king's son fired him and now he doesn't have the confidence yep. that he used to. So she knows yeah. because she's been with this person who she loves for yeah. so long. Like, no, you're still Miracle Max. Yep. Like, you can do this. You know what I mean? Like, and that yeah. is like really beautiful to see, like the encouragement of a loving oh my spouse. God. Like, Absolutely. And it is. And right. She's, she's trying to get him sort of back on the horse, yeah. back on the job. Uh, so to speak. Yeah. Cause she wants him to get his confidence back. Yeah. It is, it is really, really touching. There's, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot here. Hey, I'm going to say even, even Humperdinck's relationship with the count yes. has a, that beautiful moment yeah. where he says, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. <laughs> yeah. Such a such good a, So well such delivered. Such a good that line, line delivery. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I love to watch you work. <laughs> but I've got a wedding to plan, my fiance to murder, and the Gildarians to frame for it. <laughs> Such a like. oh, oh my so god, beautiful. I love it! I it's love this so movie. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah, man. But that's it. Like the the rad power of friendship, right? Yeah, totally. Let's get into uh, let's get into true love. What what do you think about this? Cool. I will say, I've been thinking about this movie in particular um, and the idea of this true love thing. And, you know, as an older person who grew up in a, um, you know, uh, it's no secret that I grew up in church and I was filled with a very magical thinking, you know what I mean? Like like everything around me always had a reason, always had a purpose. There was always a a long-term like destination we were trying to get to. And I, this whole idea of that, that movies like this and books and all sorts of stuff, this idea that there is this one person for you, that true love is a real thing. And you're definitely destined to find this person was the thing that I believed very, very much for a very long time. And I think that that story in hindsight, as an older person now, I think that that's a little problematic. I think the idea that you, 
uh, put your faith in one true love person that you're destined for this one person, I think it's a bit problematic. What, what do you think about that? I think, oh my God, there's so much I could say about this. I wondered, um, you and I, you and I both, <laughs> I'm going to say as people, there's a lot <sighs> to our friendship, but one of the things you and I have common, have in common is that we have both loved partners very, we have both loved partners very deeply and we have both experienced what happens when that goes awry. And we have both, <laughs> you know, felt the pain that no other pain comes close to, which is when that, that doesn't uh, work out or when it doesn't work out in relatively spectacular fashion. Um, right. So, so, I, so I've been thinking all week, I'm like, Oh, this is going to be interesting. But I think, I think, I'm going to say two things. One, don't let me forget to talk about how the ending of the book is different because it's really, really important for exactly okay. this true love thing. But I want to, I want to go back and, and do some big picture stuff. And then also don't, don't let me forget to talk about how that ties into our, our evangelical upbringing. Um, yeah. But, you know, w- one of the things that's fun in this, in this story is they make this big point of, oh, true love. It happens to one in what one in a thousand, one in a million. Yeah. I don't remember how it goes. There's yeah. that there's that line where Humperdinck kills Wesley. He yeah. he comes down. Wesley's attached to the machine in the pit of despair, and he says, "You two have true love. Maybe one in a thousand couple couples ever, or maybe one couple in a thousand years. I don't remember the line ever mm-hmm. gets to experience that. And you could have been happy, and so you're going to suffer as no one else has suffered in a thousand years. Which, yeah. by the way, yeah, full stop." You don't need the machine for that to be true right. <laughs> because, because, because true love is also the source of great suffering. My teacher, uh, one of my mentors, Richard Rohr, uh, always says that the two greatest spiritual teachers are great love and great suffering. And one of yeah. the things I always say to him is that they're the same thing. Everything that we suffer from is connected to something that we love. If we're suffering, it usually means that something we love is in danger or we're impeded to receive it. Even if I'm experiencing physical pain, my love of comfort (laughs) is being interrupted. So you have that to begin with, okay? Great love and great suffering can't have one without the other. That's my answer to, you know, when people do the whole theodicy thing and they're like, well, if the universe is good or God is good, why do we have suffering? Because you can't have love without suffering. They're... There and it's not that you have to earn it. It's that if you if you cherish something, you know the, the probability of it changing or losing it comes with it. I've buried a bunch right. of people. I know this to be very true. So that's thing yeah. one. Thing two is this idea that that true love is so rare is actually a very phenomen- phenomenological reality that the setting of this movie points out. In the olden days, people didn't meet someone and fall in love and get married. Right. Most marriages were marriages that were based on logistics. They were arranged. Right. They were for financial reasons. They were because people needed a family. You had three options to choose from. Yep. The people who had the wealth and the privilege to choose their spouse had that much more of a reason to pick someone, right? right. Um, and, and they play this out. Like the prince needs Butterbick Cup because she's beautiful and he knows the kingdom will fall in love with her. He doesn't right. need to fall in love with his wife. He also wants them to fall in love with her so that when he kills her, it'll be that much more of a big deal. But no one knows yeah. that for the first half yeah. of the story, least of all her. So, yeah. so, so the idea was that romantic love was very rare. And when you read mm-hmm. stories, like if you read uh, the Iliad, there's a character, I think it's Hector, and he's in love with his wife. And it says at one point, 
it talks about how great their love is and how it's even better than the love of men or something like that. And they're like, he's, he's best friends with her more than he is with the guys that he fights and dies with. But that's mm-hmm. not common. Right. Because people didn't have the opportunity for it to be common. You didn't choose your spouse that way. So right. it was rare that people met and fell in love. And so then this idea of romantic love became more and more of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, eventually what happened was there was this idea that it was a very like, um, you see it in a lot of Arthurian legend where the idea of like courtly love, where the knight would fall in love with a woman and that woman would inspire him to go out and do great things. But mm. usually the knight didn't end up with the woman because there mm. were logistical circumstances that prevented them being together. Arthur and Guinevere are married because that's where the marriage needs to be. Guinevere and Lancelot are in love because that's where the chemistry is. They can't be together because it doesn't work out that way. Lancelot goes out and fights quests for her honor. And then yeah. eventually that changed and the quest became about finding the person that you're in love with. Right. And society change and we change our values to the point that you can pick the person that you partner with and you can pick not to partner with the person. So right. now um, there's this idea that, that love is a possibility for everyone, but where it gets problematic is we're still running on this old romantic notion of when this first, you know, caught ground and the knight saw the princess up in the right. tower and he was going to go and do great works in her name or he was going to rescue her and return yeah. her to where she came from. And now it's like, no, I'm going to go out and I'm going to win this great love and it's going to be a happily ever after moment. And I don't know that it, I don't know that it works that way. Right. <laughs> um, and there's one more complicating factor. I know I'm talking a lot. Go for it. Which is that in part of the, you and I grew up where our, our religion also told us a lot about falling in love and being faithful. Um, you know, purity culture is a part of that. Don't have sex, you get married because you're going to get married to one person and you're going to have this marvelous relationship that's going to last forever. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you go way back into, you know, I'm, I'm big into the difference between the, this, the religion that we grew up with and the classical roots of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the roots of it, you have love poetry in the Bible, like the Song of Songs, which is, which is two, it's about King Solomon and some would say the Queen of Sheba who are, you know, from different places falling in love. And, and because of that, this poem is composed and it is very erotic love poetry. And for 2000 years, Christian mystics have said that that points us to love of the divine. This like mm. deep, passionate yearning, true love should be how you love God and how you love everything, really. So all this to say, it's like all around us and it all gets very confusing. I don't know that I agree that there is one person who you were made for, who's your destiny, right? Is it Plato's Timaeus or something where it's like humans are these round forms, they get cut in half and then scattered yeah. all around the globe and you spend the rest of your life looking for your other half. I don't know if I buy into that. Um, but so yeah. I just hit you with a bunch of information. Where do you want to jump in? Where do you want to go with that? Yeah, I think for me, that's where like a lot of the religious stuff and a lot of these like stories of like finding true love and finding the one. It really set me up for some some hard lessons, you know, young in my younger years, um, because because that's the way it was. You know, it was it 
I am a romantics, you know what I mean? So I like the, I like yeah. the idea of finding the one or whatever. Um, you know, I, in fact, I, I named my band, my old band was called Movie Line Romantics. And it was the, the idea, the name that. Movie Line Romantics was that, you know, there's always all these perfect one liners in movies that, that are so romantic, you know what I mean? And I think it, I think it really set me up for a lot of tragedy in my life because I, I put so much stock in this, like, ultra romantic idea of the one of the the perfect person yeah and um and and yeah i don't buy into that anymore i do think true love is a thing like i do think that you can truly love people you know of course like that's a very real experience um but yeah i'm not so into this uh this like super mystical uh (laughs) one person uh the the other half of you type thing you know i gotta i gotta agree with you on that one because i think i think i am into like my part of my like legitimate spiritual practice is is the mysticism of of true love and i I might say more about that in a second but um Mm -hmm. but the idea that there was one person that you're made for and if you can find that person everything will be great set a lot of of us up to fail and i think for me there's two competing narratives, both of which are bad. The one narrative is, if you find the right person, you will be happy. Mm. And then every time you're not, you find someone and you're not happy, you assume, well, therefore, I've not found the right person. You're not the right person because you don't make me happy. No human being can fulfill another human being. That's not the way it works. We make true love. We don't find it, I, I think. Right. Yes. Um you know, to to enter into a, a, a deal with someone where you choose to be the sacred witness to their story and see them in the fullness of who they are and believe in them, and they do the same thing for you, and then you make life work and you cultivate life, I think is is a very beautiful thing. And I have some friends that have, have done it very well yeah. through skill or luck, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I was busting Eric's chops when I was on his podcast because we were talking about he and I getting to be friends 25 years ago and we he talked about I said I talked him out of breaking up with his now wife mm-hmm. and he was saying how the woman that I was dating at that point was going away to do foreign exchange and so she and I were breaking up and then his now wife back then was going away to college so he's like well I'll break up with her and then the two of us will be like two single guys and we can go out on the town. (laughs) And I was like, Eric, you're insane. You're never going to do better than this woman. You need to lock this down before she comes to her senses. And then we (laughs) joked about how funny it was because in the 25 years since then, he's with the same woman and I've been with many, 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 many relationships (laughs) since then, which, which is, you know, fine. Right. But, um, but some people, some people do. So, so, but, but that weird narrative of you find it, and if you find it, it's perfect. And if it's not perfect, you haven't found it. I think that sets everyone up to fail. The problem is, I just said it. I think we make true love, we don't find it. There's another yeah. narrative that also sets people up to fail, which is all love is work. You know, I've heard people say this too. You know, arranged marriages worked for millennia. You just you just stay in it. And like, of course, love is hard. And of course, relationships are hard. And there's, of course, there's a ton of bullshit. Stop being selfish and just dig deep and make it work. And I think that also sets people up to fail because it, it puts a lot of us where we, you know, in a situation where we end up dealing with abusive things that we shouldn't tolerate. But we've been given a narrative that we expect yeah. things to be problematic. 
And so we don't recognize when we're like, no, no, this is so problematic. I definitely need to walk away. And I don't know how you find the middle. And I think yeah. the middle is what matters. Does that yeah. make sense? Well, to- oh, totally. Yes. And I, I 1000% agree with you. And to talk, to reference, to, to go a little deeper on your, uh, the second uh, problematic point that you talked about there. Uh, we've, we've referenced this a few times now. The, uh, the, the podcast that we did with Eric that Mike did, uh, and then I just did. I go very deep into that conversation because that's what I fell for, you know, in my last relationship. Yeah. Was this idea that, and I talk about it very deeply, so I'm not going to spoil it here because I do think that's, it's worth a listen. Um, but yeah, I thought that love could heal something where it was just me not being able to say this isn't okay, you know, and I couldn't walk away because I was like, love will heal this. And that's, it's not true. And I feel like, I feel like you and I had a conversation a couple years ago where you referenced the conversation that you and I had had before that. (laughs) And I remember you and I, you telling me about it more than I remember the conversation, but I had been in a relationship where it was a bad pattern that kept repeating. And we were on again, off again. I refer to this person as my sometimes girlfriend because we broke up once a year. It yeah. was basically like the spring was breakup season. Um, <laughs> and then the fall was get back together season. And we did that for six or seven years. And, and I had, I had done that because I kept thinking that if I could just dig deep and I could work hard and if I could change, you know, it, I would be good enough that eventually these things that kept happening would stop happening. And this person would stop hurting me. Right. And, um, didn't work out. Yeah. And so a friend of mine who's a psychologist in one of our breakup cycles had said to me, Hey, you know, um, whatever, she's never gonna listen to this, this person and I would break up and then she would like go to therapy and have a big breakthrough and then come back a few weeks or months later and be like, Hey, I realize X, Y, Z. And it was always the right thing to say. And I'm going to be different this time. Let's make it work. And then we would get back together and then the same things would always happen. And I was no prize either. I'm not, not blaming her. I mean, I kind of am, but not fully. (laughs) And, um, and a psychologist friend of mine said, look, Mike, he said, I'm your friend. I got your back no matter what you do. Um, I do want to tell you the best indication of the future is the past. And if you're in a pretty consistent repeating pattern, chances are it's really hard to get out of it with the same person at least. So you're probably going to end up here again in a couple months. But maybe you won't, and I'm your friend, and I've got your back no matter what. Yep. Um, Which was really hard to hear, but he said it with so much love and support, and I knew he was there for me, and he wasn't cutting me off, so I could hear it. And then months later, when I ended up there again, I was able to go, okay, I'm... I, this has got to change. I got to get out of this. Uh, and I feel like you and I maybe had a similar conversation. Oh, yeah. um, also, my cat is just knocking shit over. I don't know if you can hear that. I can remember exactly where that conversation happened. Really? We, uh, yeah, we were, we were going out to lunch for, from uh, uh, when we used to work at the church together, and we were going down to the health food store. Uh, what was that woman's name that ran that health food oh, store? Oh, man. Um, that was good. good lunch. Yeah, I can't remember her name. But anyway, we were going down there and we were we were talking about I was going through the same exact cycle you just <laughs> described and I'm going through my cycle and yep. I'm on the the downside of it trying to make a decision whether or not to get back into it and you said the same exact advice to me and yeah, and it happened again and then but like you said last I, we talked about this on this podcast so I don't want to get super redundant here. But yep. 
uh, that idea that we talked about a few podcasts ago, the, the, this phrase that's been ringing in my ears ever since you said this, uh, compassionate witness, right? Like you were a compassionate witness for yeah. me. And yes, when it came around again, there it was. It was like, oh, wait a minute. We talked about this. I've thought about this. And then eventually I did have the, the guts and I, I put enough stock in myself to say, you know what? I don't need to keep being hurt. It's okay for me to walk away. And it hurt like hell. And yeah. I went into a super dark suicidal depression. But, um, but yeah, I, we, I eventually got there because I had people like you in my life to help me through it and support me and be a compassionate witness. Um, but yeah, that narrative, man, it's scary. It's a dangerous narrative that, that, that love, you just got to keep working at it. You just got to keep working, you know, because abuse is a real thing. It's tough, man. And, and you are going to sound like some real serious, hopeless romantics here, but I remember, I do think you know, and I do think there is a, a, a sort of a love at first sight. I had a, I was in a long relationship, not the one I just described. I was in another long relationship and the first half of it was really good. Mm-hmm. And the second half of it was really bad. Yeah. We had, I'm still friends with this person. So well, I'm just going to say we had very incompatible baggage mm-hmm. and it became very apparent to me in the last like solid two years of the relationship that this person did not want to be in a relationship with me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just kept chugging along yeah. and, and the, eventually we got there and it was very liberating when we got yeah. to the point that we were like, this needs to end. And almost immediately, like we pivoted to friendship so quickly because it was liberating to go, this is bad. This is a bad fit. Nothing we can do. We had a counselor say, this is never going to work. Um, but what broke my heart about that is as we were towards the very end, like the very, very end. And I, when you, you, I don't know if you've been in a relationship, but there's nothing more painful than being lonely inside a relationship. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than being in a relationship with someone. And you're like, I'm not sure this person likes me too much at this point. Yeah. Um, but I remember I would still look at that person and still be like, God, this person's so beautiful. And I can still see why I was so attracted to them. Right. Um, yeah. And I hated yeah. that that was still there. Right. And that was that like. I meet someone and like the room stops and, and, yeah. and music plays and a light shines right. on them. And that, right. and I've, you know, that fades, that never faded for me with that person. Everything mm. else went away where we were like, okay, this is wow. we're, we're whether it's logistics or timing or personality or baggage, like this is, this one's got to come to an end. So it's, yeah. it's a tough thing. Um, yeah. Can I get, Oh, and I want to say this, anybody listening, if you have a friend who is in that pattern on again, off again, or does seem to be doing the same thing over and over again. We've just shared, you know, our stories of this. I do think it's so important to be able to tell someone the truth, but mm-hmm. to do so with love and compassion. Carl Jung yes. talks about, he says, you know, we don't always really know. He's saying this as a psychologist talking about patience. We don't always really know what's good for someone. You can watch someone make the worst choice of their life, and that choice can literally propel them to their destiny. And you can watch someone make what seems like the best choice they could possibly make, and it results in disaster. So he said, sometimes what we need to do is we need to be willing to companion someone on a daring misadventure. I've quoted mm. this before. I'll quote it again. I love this And quote. so I think the willingness <laughs> so to say to someone, yeah, it's like, it's so good. It's, I think it's what friendship really is, is to say yeah. to someone, right, exactly what you just said. I'm going to be your sacred witness. I'm going to companion you on a daring misadventure. Here's what I think, but... You know, especially in the point that you're not putting yourself or me in very serious danger. Like, I got your back. Yeah. Uh, and you're a grown up. And yeah. I remember saying to someone at some point, you and I both know you need to get out of this relationship, but you're going to get out of it when you're ready. 
Yeah. And until then, I got your back. Um, totally. And I needed that because people did it for me. Yeah. Right. And then, and then on the flip side, like we said, we have friends who, who have had relationships that like go through a really rocky season and then work out. I've had mm-hmm. friends who I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know if it's good parents or good genetics or good psychology, but they meet, they fall in love, they do life. And like, yeah, <laughs> you know, sometimes they fight about someone being late or like, right, right, right. you know, not replacing the toilet paper roll. And I'm like, God, what a novelty to fight about stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Seriously. I don't know. I, I digress. But um, two two things, you know, the practical is, so I'm 44 and still dating. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, there are days where I'm like, maybe I'll just date forever. And it's <laughs> And one of the things, especially at my age, that friends and I talk about all the time is that sweet spot of like not having standards so you don't keep digging yourself in the same hole over and over again and like being comfortable saying, you know, you meet someone, they're great. They can be great and not be what you're looking for and have things where you're like, I just don't want, you know, I have big intense things where I'm like, don't date someone who's a liar. That's a yeah. really good one. Um, trying to lean into that one a little better. But then other <laughs> things of just saying like, if someone's like, I don't want to date someone who works too much or right. I don't want to have more kids, things like that. Like just for that to be okay on the one hand and on the other hand going, don't be so much of a perfectionist. You're not looking for Prince Charming or Princess mm. Buttercup. You're looking for a human person that you can make a relationship work with. And I think what's fun is that the 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 novel captures a tiny bit of that. So in the mm. in the movie at the very end they um they ride off into the sunset and they have this beautiful kiss and and it's perfect. I would never mm-hmm. change it. The end of the book is different. Can I play the end for you? Yeah. So Go right when they're riding away on the horses um and they're like gonna escape this happens tell me if you can hear it okay from behind them suddenly closer than they imagined they could hear the roar of humperdinck stop them cut them off they were admittedly startled but there was no reason for worry they were on the fastest horses in the kingdom and the lead was already theirs however this was before inigo's wound reopened wesley relapsed again and fezzik took the wrong turn and buttercup's horse threw a shoe and the night behind them was filled with a crescendoing sound of pursuit. <laughs> That's Morgenstern's ending. Uh, Lady of the Tiger type effect. This was before the Lady of the Tiger, remember? Now, he was a satirist, so he left it that way. And my father was, I guess, I realized too late, a romantic. So he ended it another way. Well, I'm an abridger, so I'm entitled to a few ideas of my own. Did they make it? Was the pirate ship there? You can answer it for yourself. But for me, I say yes, it was. And I say yes, they got away. And got their strength back and had lots of adventures. And more than their share of laughs. But that doesn't mean I think that they had a happy ending either. Because in my opinion, anyway, they squabbled a lot. And Buttercup lost her looks eventually. And one day Fezzik lost a fight. And some hotshot kid whipped Inigo with a sword. And Wesley was never able to really sleep sound because of Humperdinck maybe being on the trail. I'm not trying to make this a downer, you understand. I mean, I really do think that love is the best thing in the world except for cough drops. But I also have to say that life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death, that's all. Wow. And that's the end of the book. That's awesome. Maybe a perfect ending. It's so good. That's really it's so good. And I last think line there, life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death. Yeah. Well, they sort of do that in the movie a little bit. They, they quote something similar in the movie that which I, I wrote down because it always sticks out to me is when uh, when Wesley says, 
life is pain, highness. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Brilliant. So yeah. good. And that and that's the thing what we were saying earlier where I think you can't have love without suffering. Yeah. And I think that you can't have human relationship without disconnection and reconnection. It's a dance and it's hard. Mm. And if I can get mystical for a second one of the things that's that's captivating we, we don't we don't have to go too much into this but in almost every major world religion there is some expression of it that is about mystical love right in in christianity you go all the way back to the beginning and they would take the song of songs this book of poetry in the middle of the bible that's a little bit controversial because it's kind of about sex and mm-hmm. and erotic love and they would say this is how we're supposed to love the divine. The, the way that we fall in li- love with each other. Sex and romantic love can be something that points us to the ultimate love. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that love is the most important thing, right? Love is, love is, God is love. Love is the DNA of the universe. Love is the DNA of the human person. And if that's true, all suffering can be redemptive. Everything can move us towards that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're looking for is the love capital L. And so we are, in Western culture, we're a culture that's in love with love. Um, but this kind of mysticism would tell us that we look for it in the wrong place. And you see, mm-hmm. you see something similar. Hinduism, there's bhakti yoga. In Islam, my favorite part of Islam is Sufi love poetry, mm-hmm. where they're totally in love with the beloved, in love with the other, but that points you to the divine. And the idea is um, that there is this mystical love that is the essence of reality. I believe it. You don't have to. And our partners and our friends and our pets and a good moment on the way to the grocery store all make that more re- real and like pull back the curtain a little bit and give us a glimmer of it. Mm. And so the idea is that we partner well and we build a healthy relationship and then we cultivate a relationship with that love capital L Mm-hmm. And then from there, we love our partners well, and we experience things that let us see the, the big love mm. at work there. And then the big love helps us love our partners that much more better and our children and our friends. Yeah. The challenge we get into is when we want our partners to be the source mm. of that capital L love for us. Yeah. That doesn't work. Because that's one person. So, if I was going to talk about mystically, I'd say that's one human person who can't, they can reveal the divine to us, but they can't be responsible for all of it. Yeah. Um, And if you don't want to look at it in God talk, it's one person who can't carry the full beauty of the entire cosmos. They can show it in microcosm in moments, but they can't be responsible for it for you. One of the most painful things that ever happened to me was uh, uh, someone I was in a relationship with said to me, you know, I was... I was reading the other day, uh, and someone, this mystical teacher, said the only way we can love people is to show them unconditional love. And I realized that's the problem with you, is that you don't love me unconditionally. And the irony was, I'm sure at that particular moment in time, I had failed or something somehow. Mm -hmm. But the irony was, the moment someone says, the only way you can love someone, uh, love a partner, is to show them unconditional love. And I realized that's the problem with you. Therein lies the great joke, right? Because we always think, well, why aren't people showing me unconditional love? And if I was showing someone else unconditional love, the last thing I would be thinking is about how they're not loving me well. Right. And I, I, think, I think it's impossible to yeah. think that we can expect that from human persons. There's a book by a Buddhist psychotherapist that I really like called John Wellwood, and it's called Perfect Love, Imperfect Relationships. 
And this is what he talks about, is like looking for that perfect love in the essence of what it is, Mm. and then bringing that to our imperfect relationships with imperfect people, Mm. as opposed to holding imperfect people accountable for failing to give us a perfect love that genuinely can't come from just another human. Right. And that's what I have to say about that. What do you think? That's... Oh, that's, that's beautiful. I mean, I do, it does, uh, I mean, it's, this is a less mystical, but, but, uh, on the same, on the same lines, it's something that I've heard about a lot lately is, is how we've changed, um, over time to where, you know, we used to, uh, spread our love and our relationships across friends and family and lovers and that, and all this stuff. And we've become a lot more insular in our modern times where we sort of put, um, all of those relationship uh, requirements onto our lover and they have to be our best friend. They have to be our, you know, like our closest confidant. They have to be all these things. And we, we put a little, we put too much pressure on our lovers a lot of times and then they can't be this perfect person, right? Like, cause, cause like you're saying one person can't reveal all these things at the same time. Um, and that's why, like, I'm super grateful that I do have a lot more outlets in my life. I have a great family, and I also have, like, a lot of super, super close friends where I can get expressions of love from multiple places, and it's, you know, uh, it, it's a lot. I'm very grateful that I have that opportunity in my life. Absolutely. And and I think that's the thing. Um, they're doing more and more studies that really, to be fulfilled and to love well, that love needs to come from a bunch of different sources. I'm going to read just passage from this book, and then I'll shut up about it. John Wellwood says, we imagine that others, surely someone out there, should be a source of perfect love by consistently loving us in just the right way. Since our first experience of love usually happens in relation to other people, we naturally come to regard relationship as the main source of love in our life. Then, when relationships fail to deliver the ideal love that we dream of, we imagine something has gone seriously wrong. And this disappointed hope keeps reactivating the wound of the heart and generating grievance against others. This is why the first step in healing the wound and freeing ourselves from grievance is to appreciate the importance between the important difference between absolute and relative love. Mm. And that's that thing where that absolute love, mystically, I would say, is that love, capital L, and relative is what we get from people. Or, per your describing, you don't need a mystical component. You need a God component. The absolute love is everything, everyone. It's the sunset, it's your dog, it's your parents, it's, it's right. you know, we're all doing the best we can, cobbling a bunch together. Yeah. Um, and, and when we expect one person to give us perfect love and they fail, mm-hmm. that love very quickly turns to hate. And, yeah. um, and, and that's one of the things I love about this story is it's, it's, um, it's a story of love and revenge, right? I know you were right. saying this earlier. Uh, those things live really, really close together when we expect humans never to let us down. Yeah. Well, speaking of revenge, I mean, I did want to touch on that. I know we're running close to the end of our podcast here, but I I just wanted to touch on this a little bit because especially this time watching it, I really was thinking about the B story here, which is an ego story of his father was a sword maker. He he was uh, commissioned to to craft a sword for this person, the six-fingered man. Um, the guy came back to get the sword and uh, offered him one-tenth its promised price. And then when his father said, no, I, I'm not going to sell it to you for that, he just stabbed him right through the heart. So Inigo, his whole story is that he's been, he loved his father so much. I think they said he was, he say 11 years old, I believe, something like that, um, when his father was killed. And he's 
been on a quest for 20 years training to, to, to avenge his, his father's death. And he's been trying to track down the, uh, the six fingered man. And that is a story of love, right? He loves his father so much. He's trying to avenge him. And it's, it's very striking to me though, that that, like you said earlier, that is a very unhealthy expression of love. Like revenge is not a good, it's not a great thing, but for whatever reason, and, and I, this might be a little, we might need a lot more time to break down why this is so uh, big. We love revenge stories. We love revenge oh stories. But it's just Absolutely. another, like specifically in this case, like it's just another murder kind of, you know? It's just like, I'm just, yeah. yes, he killed my father. And yes, he does stab me. And, and so I'm getting back at him. But, you know, especially like for somebody like me who I, I, you know, these days again, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I still am into, like, I still appreciate the teachings of Jesus when he talks about, when he says, you know, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I tell you, turn the other cheek. That's a radical thought, right? Because we love the idea of revenge so much. Um, and this idea of turning the other cheek of, 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 of choosing to take the L actually, and I wish I would have had, I should have had a little bit more time to research this, but I heard a story years ago about, they did this um, sort of like a war game scenario and they did all these tests and they realized Mm -hmm. that when you have countries or whatever battling back and forth, revenge, 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 the only way you get out of that loop is if somebody takes an L and turns the other cheek. It's the only way the loop will ever end, you know? Um, so yeah, what what do you think yeah. about revenge and uh, love and <laughs> I think it's well said. I think I know I I agree with you. I'm I'm glad you pointed that out. It's funny because it, it's definitely in the story. So it's it's there with an ego. It's also there with Miracle Max. That's the funniest thing is Yes. Miracle Max says that true love is the greatest thing ever, but what gets him on the job <laughs> is the opportunity to get back at Humperdinck, right? That's that great scene. He's like, "Oh, I'm on the job." He puts his hat on, and he's ready to rock and roll. Yes. Um and I think, I think that that's there. There's a lot of, uh, this is what I think of the genius of this story is it's also very dark. Like one of the things you never think about is if, Le- if Wesley has been the Dread Pirate Roberts for the last three or five years, whatever, and the Dread Pirate Roberts leaves no prisoners, Wesley has been murdering people, straight up yes. murdering people. You know, he's, <laughs> he's not, not a necessarily good a good guy anymore. <laughs> no, he's not a good guy. Um, and it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not quite so black and white. But I, I think, you know, the, the whole idea of like, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, right? Yeah. Um, I was thinking recently, I was looking at an old uh, a, he- a story out of the Hebrew Bible, where um, we do not have time to get into this, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a story that is literally about nothing that anyone thinks it's about. Yes. Um, I remember you preaching it, it on this is, one time, and it was fascinating. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah, because it's about it's about strangers being mistreated. Yes. Um, and then what happens is um, uh, Abraham and God have a conversation, and Abraham is aware that the city is going to be destroyed because of its sin, and its sin is that they are violent people who mistreat um, strangers who come in mm-hmm. to the town. And uh, they violate the ethic of hospitality, which is a big deal in a desert culture where it's like you Mm -hmm. offer hospitality to the stranger. You offer kindness to people who are in your power and they Mm -hmm. do not. Um, So, big deal, big story. Abraham says to God, 
hey, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, you're not going to destroy it for the sake of like, even, I mean, I get it, city, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, but what if there's 50 good people? Would you spare it for 50 good people? And God says, okay, fine. If there's 50 good people, I won't destroy the city. And then he says, well, what about 40? And he says, okay, if there's 41. So Abraham haggles God down to 10. (laughs) And the implication is the city still gets destroyed because there's not 10 good people in it. And a lot of people read that and they think it's about the judgment of God against uh, sin. And you could make that argument, right? That, Mm -hmm. that, That we need to have a standard of judgment where people who oppress and exploit others are held accountable. Yeah. But there's a completely different way to read the story, and it's the, the right way to read the story, I think, is that what Abraham should have done, it's a tragedy. It's not a happy ending. It's a tragedy. What Abraham should have done was kept on arguing and just said, hey, would you just, would you spare the entire city for my sake? Yeah. And the implication is if he would have just taken it one step further, God would have said, okay, fine. Because the, the, the ethic is either everybody gets love and mercy or nobody gets it. Right. And the failure to extend it results in total destruction. And what people don't understand when they read stories like Sodom and Gomorrah or they read stories like The Flood is, I mean, first of all, they're myths, right? They're not historical accounts. They're not stories of God saying, this is how it should be. They're cautionary tales where it's like, this is what it would look like if God rained down fire and brimstone and punished people who made mistakes. There'd be no one left. There'd be no one left. Mm -hmm. So, the, the story is supposed to upset us and move us from an ethic of retributive justice to an ethic of restorative justice. Yeah. Where we say, okay, we the only way this wins, the, right, the only way humanity comes out of this okay, like you said, is if somebody takes an L or we're willing to grant mercy, you cannot counter destruction with destruction mm-hmm. and come out in any other scenario than genocide and highly, highly, highly traumatized survivors. Because in the flood story, you have Noah who's allowed to escape because he's a good person, and you have Lot who's allowed to escape, and they both have extreme PTSD. They both get drunk immediately after, and it's mm. a disaster. Yeah. And so, so again, I don't think we have the nuance. If it was a movie, we'd be able to go, oh, that's a tragedy that's telling us what not to do. And I don't know why yeah, yeah, people yeah. can't do that with, with biblical stories. But yeah, man, I couldn't agree with you more. I've been thinking about this all week, and I'm really glad you made the revenge connection because I didn't think about that. Yeah. when I watch the story. And I almost wonder if it's the reason that Anigo's revenge is not clean. Like he yeah. still gets pretty banged up in the process mm-hmm. and then goes on to become the next Dread Pirate Roberts, which is... Yeah. And I I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think I read something you could tell me. Uh, in the book, isn't the revenge a little bit more gruesome than in the movie? It is. What happens is he... Uh, in the movie, what happens is, you know, he he tricks him, he throws the knife, cowardly stabs him, um, and then he stabs him in each arm. And so then what he does is he stabs him every place he's been stabbed. Yep. And then, and then does that thing, you know, ask me for anything you want and so on and so forth. That, th- I don't think that part's in the book. In the book, what he does is he does the same thing. He cuts his face. He gives him all the same wounds that he has. And then he slashes to the left of his heart. And then he slashes to the right of his heart. And then he slashes underneath his heart. And he says, do you realize what I'm doing? And he says, you're cutting out my heart. And he says, yes, the way you cut out my heart when you killed my father. And before he gets to give the final blow and cut his heart out, the Count has a heart attack and dies of fear on the spot. Wow. Um, so, yeah, definitely more gruesome, very intense, very brutal, brutal ending. 
Um, <laughs> and funny too because the um, they make a little bit more of the of the fact when they when they do the flashback that the count refuses to kill him as a child. He spares him specifically because he's a mm. child, and he says, "You're. I can see you have some talent. someday. You're going to grow up to be a good swordsman." So he leaves him alive, mm. and 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 um, and then the the other thing is they don't kill Humperdinck. Yeah, which depending on how you look at it, could be like that's where mercy comes in, but it also keeps the revenge plot going. Yeah, Humperdinck is going to go looking for him, whether to get Buttercup back. Or just to get revenge. Well, and Wesley is doing his own form of revenge there because he says, no, I want him to be alive to live with his cowardice. You know, like, so he's yes. doing his own form of revenge yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because he's, he's, you know, up to that moment in the story, they don't really play him as a coward. He's actually, the, the prince is yeah. a great soldier and he's a very, very successful hunter. That's his thing, right? He's a, he's right. a, he's a hunter. Um and I guess, you know, there's there's the, the cowardice of he, he steps down and chooses not to fight Wesley in that one scene. But I think it's more that Wesley wants him to experience what he experienced, which was, you know, him hearing that his true love was betrothed to someone else right. um, or that someone else had, had made off with what was his. So it is, yeah, man, revenge definitely drives the story. Yeah. And I think I think it drives most stories, you know, there, there's yeah. um there's a lot of. Yeah, we love revenge stories. You're not wrong. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, believe it or not, I, I think the, like, maybe Return of the Jedi, okay. where Luke chooses not to kill his dad. Like, there's a few yeah, of those yeah. stories where there's, like, a twist. Yeah. And it's like, no, I'm not going to, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to fully answer violence with violence. And then somehow, miraculously, it works out. Right. But there's not a lot yeah. of stories like that. Love- I don't think we've grown into that ethic yet as a species. Yeah, Totally. I agree, which calls back to our last episode where we talked about uh, will we ever get to a place where uh, where we are actually one, you know? Not when revenge yeah. is, is on the table. I, well, the other thing I love about this story is it talks about the nature of story. So the the book, in theory, is a story that a guy heard when he was a kid that his dad read to him and changed it. Mm-hmm. Then he goes back and he's reading a book about a guy writing a, a, hist- a, sat- a satirical history of supposedly real world events, which right. he then chooses to abridge and change, right. which then gets adapted into a movie, which gets changed again, which has Peter Falk telling a story mm-hmm. to a kid who's listening to the story. Rob Reiner, the director, directed it specifically because he loved the story because his dad gave it to him. And I think it speaks to how we live in that we are always looking for good stories to be guidelines for our life, mm. but also then we edit those stories. We mm. wrestle with the stories that guide us, just like we go back and we change our own story. So even I just told a Bible story, and I'm like, that Bible story is not telling you how to live. It's showing you what not to do, and we need to wrestle with that. And then you and I telling these stories about realizing we were doing the same thing over and over again, as we talked about at length in our Groundhog Day episode. Yeah. And then even remembering the many times we watch this movie and how we see it different each time. It's the same way we we live our own life. Like I think we need to be telling our stories over and over again, paying attention to them, but also giving ourselves permission to edit them and yeah. let them change. Yeah. And let them hmm. change what they mean to us. That's great. That's awesome. I think that's a good place And to... my cat is eating the packaging on the microphone stand that you sent me. Buddy, <laughs> could you not be a dick for five minutes during this recording? Honestly. Great movie, though. Fantastic movie. 
And I think that's a great place for us to, to, to land this episode. So we'll do our normal uh, ending here. Um, just a reminder, everybody, uh, to uh, subscribe on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Give us a, a five-star rating if you can, a review if you feel like it. And just a reminder, we do have an Instagram page now. It's Pod on Instagram, and we uh, you know post stuff there, and you can interact with us there and give us more suggestions. Uh, like I said, this was a fan suggestion this episode, so... Uh, we, Mike and I definitely have a long list of movies we want to cover, but, you know, you never know. Maybe uh, something you uh, suggest might uh, make its way onto the podcast. So thank you so much for listening, guys. We appreciate you so much. We're so happy uh, that, that people are actually listening to this silly little thing that we're doing. Um, this is the Cinemarter Podcast, and we will see you next time. See you later. <laughs>